Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Almost everything that Thomas Cranmer was last week, John Knox was not. Cranmer, you may remember, tended towards timidity. John Knox never did, at least not to our knowledge. When the King of England, Henry, commanded Thomas Cranmer's obedience, Cranmer obeyed sometimes even when compromise was required. But when the Queen of Scotland commanded John Knox's obedience, John Knox refused her so strongly that she cried. (laughs) Knox is remembered in Scotland as the preacher who made the Queen cry. Thomas Cranmer was firm in several of his convictions. I don't want to exaggerate when I contrast these two figures. It's not that Cranmer had no conviction. He did. It just wasn't like John Knox. John Knox was bold. England had a milder man to guide it through its reformation as the country turned from Roman Catholic to the truth of the Scriptures. But a milder man like Thomas Cranmer would have been useless in Scotland. In fact, that's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said when he was speaking of Knox. He said, a mild man would have been useless in the Scotland of the 16th century. A strong man was needed, a courageous man, and such a man was John Knox. Knox was like John the Baptist. You know, if you want to find soft clothing and those who wear soft clothing, you go to Lambeth Palace, where Cranmer was maybe, But Knox was out in his camel hair and eating locusts and proclaiming in the wilderness the need for repentance. And that's what he did in Scotland. John Knox begins his career in the Reformation as a bodyguard carrying around a sword to protect the person preaching. Then spends 19 months against the elements as a galley slave under the French. Then he preaches the gospel with rhetoric of fire and steel and to such an effect that it emboldens a whole nation, Scotland, the warm-blooded people, and they turn, the whole nation turns from Roman Catholicism. One week before John Knox's death, he had several pastors gathered at his bedside and he explained to them why he had been so bold in his ministry. He said, a certain reverential fear of my God had such a powerful effect as to make me utter so intrepidly, fearlessly, whatever the Lord put into my mouth without respect of persons. The one word picture that best summarizes Knox's life is a trumpet. He was not a flute player who played upon men's ears. He was a trumpet. It's the illustration he often used of himself. He said, I must be blowing my master's trumpet. And that is what he did. In Scotland, he blew the trumpet by preaching and the walls of Jericho fell. Now, as we get into Knox's life, honestly, it is so full of action. It is really hard to summarize in one hour. We could summarize John Calvin's life easily in one hour if we're just talking about the events. His thought is much more complex. But John Knox, the events of his life are like an action movie or a novel, but they're true. 
So what we're going to do is really his life is kind of conveniently broken up. There are two stages of preparation where you see God preparing the man for his greatest work. One of those stages happens in his own beloved Scotland, north of England, and the other takes place on the continent, specifically in Geneva. But then once he's prepared, he returns for that final great battle, that last advance of the truth to bring his country, Scotland, under the scriptures. So it's under those three headings we're going to consider his life. So let's begin with the first stage of his preparation, which takes place in Scotland. This begins us with his birth and then on through early life and education until he's converted to the truth. He was born in a very small town, just a little ways east of Edinburgh in Scotland. The town was called Haddington. This is around the year 1514, we're not entirely sure. His parents, if you had to guess what religion his parents were, you would say Catholic, because that's what Scotland was. And most European nations were under the Roman Catholic Church, early 1500s. 1529, John Knox is about 15 years of age, and he goes off to one of, if not the most important university in Scotland at that time, and still really to this day, St. Andrews. Goes there to study, takes seven years, becomes a master of arts. We don't know much about this time, but he must have shown some promise because he's ordained as a priest the same year he graduates, but technically he's too young to be a priest. So he must have been compelling enough in his abilities. He doesn't start by taking a parish. He actually becomes a papal notary, signing, authenticating official documents for the Roman Catholic Church and travels around that way. Now, here is a young man who had entered into the service of the Roman Catholic Church, and it seemed like that would be the rest of his life. So the question that confronts us in this period of his life is what so drastically took place in his life that he became no longer a servant of this church, but came to see it as the very enemy and antichrist of the gospel. Again, when we're talking about Knox's early life, we don't have all the details. But this we do know. Shortly after he graduates, becomes a priest and a papal notary, he becomes a tutor to two family, to their, to their boys, And both of these families are very well-known Protestant families. Scotland was Roman Catholic, but among the nobility and several important families and all kinds of families, the Reformation that's taking place around this very time is starting to take hold. So two of the families he's tutoring, they are Protestants. There's also a former Dominican friar named Thomas Guillaume, probably had some influence there, but whatever the reasons, by the time you get to the end of his tutoring in 1543, he is firmly Protestant. Later in life, he said in his Scottish way, it pleased God to call me from the puddle of papistry. Now he's Protestant, a dangerous thing to be in Scotland or in Europe, 1543. Just shortly after this, one of the most important people to ever enter his life comes into the region where he's living. This man is named George Wishart. 
Wishart is Reformed, he's a Protestant, and he's a preacher, and he had been traveling throughout Scotland preaching the truth of the Scriptures, and certainly against the abuses and errors of the Roman Catholic Church. This man came to the region where our friend John Knox was. Knox was attracted to this man as a preacher of the truth, and very soon became his assistant, but not just his assistant. These were rough times. This is when he took up his sword to defend him to the death. Because preaching the Reformation, preaching the truths of the Bible in Scotland at this time meant you would likely die. So Knox accompanies Wishart, sword at his side to protect him. Now, the reason Wishart is so important in Knox's life is not because they knew each other very long. He only was with them about a year's time, if that, as he accompanies him, as he preaches. But Wishart became for Knox his first mentor. He showed him this is what courageous gospel courage and preaching looks like lived out in a preacher's life. Knox sees that in Wishart. As I say, not even really a year, about that time passes, and finally Wishart's time had run out. He knew it. He was about to be arrested. Afterward, he would be burned at the stake. Knox did not bear the sword for nothing, and we can imagine that this red-blooded Scottish man would have fought to the death like Peter. But Wishart very wisely told him, one, one is enough for one sacrifice. And so he tells Knox to leave. Knox leaves. Wishart is arrested, and on March the 1st, 1546, he dies as a martyr. At this point, John Knox is armed with greater insight about the gospel he's been hearing from Wishart. He sees what courageous gospel ministry looks like, and he now makes his way to St. Andrew's Castle. This is not... St. Andrew's University. This is St. Andrew's Castle. This castle was actually the home of a Roman Catholic cardinal until Protestants killed the cardinal. That is not recommended. That is not the way the Reformation should proceed, but that's the way it was proceeding. So they had killed this cardinal because this was the cardinal who had killed George Wishart, burnt him at the stake. So this was retaliation on the part of the Protestants. And after they killed the cardinal, they took up that residence, St. Andrew's Castle, and it became a sort of Protestant refuge for this minority in a Roman Catholic nation. And so John Knox made his way to this castle. Now, while he's at this castle, he's a Bible teacher, he's tutoring, he's learning, he's growing, no doubt. And he must, again, have had some ability in his teaching of the Bible. But you see, he was not a preacher. And he did not have the intention, so far as we know, of becoming a preacher like George Wishart was, maybe because, well, you saw what happened to George Wishart. There is a real risk of life. If you want to be in this taken-over Catholic castle preaching Protestantism in a Roman Catholic nation, then you're signing your own death warrant. One day, John Knox is sitting among the congregation as the man who's the pre who is the preacher is preaching, and during the sermon, and maybe this should become a practice here, but during the sermon, the preacher points John Knox out and says, I believe this man is called to preach. And we imagine Knox, this courageous, heroic man, standing up and taking the charge. He left the room weeping. 
He felt, I think, not only the fact that this could mean his life, but also the weight of what it meant to preach the gospel. Was he up to that? Well, he leaves, searches his soul, and returns and says, I will preach the gospel. So he becomes at St. Andrew's Castle a preacher of the gospel of Christ. Now, for a time, he was protected because he's in a castle, which is nice. And that worked well as a defense until the French, who were also Catholic and had an interest in Scotland because the Queen Regent currently ruling over was connected to France. The French sent a fleet of ships to bombard this heretic castle. And finally, they defeated it. The Protestants were taken captive, and that included John Knox. And for the next 19 months, this young John Knox was a slave on a galley ship. Terrible conditions against the cold and heat in the Atlantic Ocean. In fact, there were two times in this year and a half where he is rowing or whatever he's doing on this galley ship, where they come inside of the steeple of St. Andrews, where he had preached. And his soul went out. He wanted to preach in Scotland. He was convinced God would send him back to preach. But at the time, he was in shackles. One instance worth recounting from this period of time gives you a flavor of John Knox. Knox later recounted there was one time as he's a slave on this galley ship that his French captors, who are Catholic, took a statue, an idol, to Knox's mind of Mary, thrust it in his face and said, kiss her, kiss the virgin. And Knox, (laughs) he took the idol, he threw it over the edge of the ship, and he said, let our lady now save herself, she's light enough, let her learn to swim. The cold Atlantic waters could not apparently quench his fiery Scottish spirit. Now, after 19 months, through a prisoner exchange, he was released. But he realized it was probably not best for him to stay in such a hostile place as Scotland. It just so happened that around this time, England, the neighbor to the south of Scotland had broken away from the Roman Catholic Church under the guidance of none other than King Henry VIII and Thomas Cranmer. King Henry VIII had just died, which meant that his son, King Edward VI, his much more Protestant son, was now ruling under advisors the nation. That meant that England was a very good place for Protestants to go. So John Knox leaves the galley ship, and makes his way down to England. This begins the second stage of preparation. He knows the gospel, as it is in the scriptures. He has seen courageous gospel ministry and preaching. He's been prepared not only by his own preaching now of the gospel, but also by 19 hard months of trial. God is preparing him, and now comes the second stage. The first stage takes place in Scotland, of course, but now it's the stage of preparation that takes place outside of Scotland. We'll summarize it as Geneva, because that's the most important place he's about to go, but he starts, as I said, in England. 1549, he becomes a pastor of a church in England. Two years later, he becomes a pastor of another church, and his reputation grows. He is a bold and a 
powerful preacher of the scriptures. And so, that same year he became a pastor of the Second Church, 1551, King Edward VI appointed John Knox to be one of his own royal chaplains, which was an immense honor for anyone, including a, a Scotsman. So he becomes a, a royal chaplain and he begins traveling around the nation of England to preach the gospel, much as Wishart had done in Scotland, I suppose. Now, one interesting thing to note while he's here in England, he's not there for too long, is just imagine, here's England, and you've got one great preacher, John Knox, with boldness and no fear of man, and the nation and the church is being led by Thomas Cranmer, the gentle, milder fellow. So these two are working together. But of course, with two such personalities and a sets of opinions, they actually clashed at least a little bit. The most famous instance of this is in 1552. That's the year that Thomas Cranmer published his revised Book of Common Prayer, Liturgy for the English Church. As it was getting ready for publication, John Knox hears what's in that book. And one of the things in that liturgy is it is everybody who is in an English church, when the communion is distributed or at least being prepared, they have to kneel. Now, that's what they had done in the Roman Catholic Church. So Cranmer was making decisions, what do we keep from the Catholic Church and what do we not? And he kept that, we kneel. But you see, from Knox's point of view, that was a part of the old error. That was false worship. That turned communion into idolatry. And he could not bear it. And he preached boldly against it. Now, in the end, Thomas Cranmer had more authority and so the Book of Common Prayer, 1552, went out as is. But famously, a little slip of paper printed in black ink, most were printed in red, this one was in black because it was done, I guess, last minute, was slipped into that part of the Book of Common Prayer. And when you read that little piece of paper, it was Cranmer saying, listen, you kneel before communion, but don't think that's to worship the elements. That's not true. Point of clarification. See, Knox was, in a very real sense, we could say, the first Puritan. If you know the Puritans, they're going to come onto the scene in England later, in the next century, really. But, many of them will be there, but he's the first Puritan because what the Puritans desired was to further purify the English church. They thought Cranmer and the government did not go far enough in removing us from the Roman Catholic Church. Knox had that same feeling, and he fought for it. At the age of 15, you remember, King Edward VI, his short-lived reign ends. He dies, much to the dismay of Protestants, because to the throne comes Queen Mary, Queen Bloody Mary, and very soon she will be burning Protestants. The Protestants know what's coming, so they're deciding, do we flee or do we stay? And many made this choice and many made that. Knox was kind of tormented with the decision because he's bold and he wants to fight in Scotland, but he also knows it is a losing battle at the moment. Eventually, he decides, January 1554, that he will now leave England. So he sails to arrive in a port, port of Dieppe in France which 
By the way, a bit of an irony since the English had worked to rescue him from the French when he was fleeing Scotland and now the, he goes to France to escape the English. Poor man. But he arrives there, 1554, begins to travel around the continent and comes finally to the place that will have the greatest influence on him. And that is the Swiss city, independent city, of Geneva. Now, if I say Geneva, you might have a particular figure in your mind. Who would that be? John Calvin. We were talking about him next week. Geneva was the place where John Calvin, the reformer, the French reformer, did his most important work, at least in terms of his activity. Knox is traveling around, comes to Geneva, leaves, but eventually comes back, stays there, and sits under the teaching of John Calvin. And very famously, Knox is so impressed with this city, it's really an experiment in what Protestantism could look like in a city. He's so impressed, he says, that that place was the most perfect school of Christ on earth since the days of the apostles. Knox is sitting under the teaching of Calvin as he himself is studying some Hebrew and Greek. He does this for about a year's time. The things that draw him to Calvin, if George Wishart was his first mentor, showed him, showed him courageous gospel ministry, John Calvin becomes his second mentor and an important one. The things that draw him to Calvin, we guess in hindsight, would be things like this. One of Calvin's greatest themes in all of his thinking and all of his works is pure worship. So stated negatively, that means the absence of idols and idolatry. That resonated with Knox's heart. As well, Calvin, in a unique way, had a lofty, high, exalted view of God. Such a high view of God, one might say, that it could drive out your fear of man. So Knox is attracted to these kinds of things. Two important things happen while he's in Geneva besides just learning from Calvin. One is that in 1555, he takes a very quick trip back to Scotland to pick up a young lady named Marjorie. When he was in Scotland earlier, he had met Marjorie. She and her mother had actually come to Christ through his own preaching, and they had gotten engaged, him and Marjorie. But because of the turmoil of what was happening in Scotland, much, I'm sure, to both their hearts' dismay, for years they were not able to actually get married. But now that he's safe in Geneva, 1555, he takes a quick trip, picks up Marjorie and her mother, brings her back, and they are, now she is his wife. She will bear him two sons. That happens in Geneva. The second thing that happens in Geneva, important and in some ways unfortunate, I suppose, is he writes his best-known work. It becomes an infamous work, actually. When he's thinking about writing this work, he tells John Calvin, this is what I'm thinking, and Calvin tells him, don't. Don't write that. That is not a good idea. But as you can already tell, it's difficult to dissuade John, John Knox. So he writes it anyways, and he publishes it in 1558, and it's called The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. 
monstrous regiment there means monstrous unnatural, and regiment means rule. You have to see this book in its context, okay, to really understand what he was doing. This was not, as far as we can tell, really about women ruling. It was an argument against queens being the sole people in charge of a nation, which was common practice in Europe. It was an argument against that, but it wasn't really. You have to give him this, that all the queens he'd met so far wanted to kill him. So there were actually three queens named Mary, ironically, and they all wanted to or would want to have him dead. They were all very Catholic. You had Queen Mary I in England, who was ruining all of his hopes for reformation in England. You had the French Queen Regent who was ruling in Scotland, and her name was Mary of Guise. And then her daughter, who would take the throne after her, who was presently over in France, her name was Mary, later Mary, Queen of Scots. All three very Catholic queens, all three in opposition to the Reformation in the two places certainly dearest to his heart, England and, of course, Scotland. So this was really a book against the Queen Marys. He had, when he first came to the continent, gone around to many reformers asking their opinion on this question Do you think it's okay if you have a ruler, he's thinking Queen Mary's, if you have a ruler who is Catholic leading the nation into idolatry, is it okay either for the common man or maybe especially for the nobility at least to have some authority to rise up and overthrow the ruler? John Calvin firmly believed, no, that's not okay. You're a Christian. You suffer. That's what you do. You don't take up arms and overthrow a ruler. John Knox came to the opposite conclusion. Maybe it was his fiery temperament, I don't know. But he, came, he concluded you can't overthrow a ruler. And this, this tract was a call to overthrow, in a sense, subtly, to overthrow the Queen Marys. The problem was it was the worst timed book in all of history because he wrote it as Queen Mary was on the throne in England. It goes to the printers. They just finished printing it, ink still fresh on the page. They're sending it out. And Queen Mary is no longer the Queen of England. She had died. And in her place ruled her sister, Queen Elizabeth, who was Protestant. So Protestants across Europe are rejoicing and are, in fact, leaving even Geneva, flocking back to England. John Knox plans to go through England to go back to Scotland. And Queen Elizabeth reads his little book and says, no, you don't. (laughs) She would not allow him in the country because whatever his intentions, by the time the book was published, it was an attack on her rule, even if he didn't mean it to be that. He cannot pass through England, but as you can see, Knox is not a man to lose heart. He has now gone through two periods of preparation for a great work that God has for him in Scotland. So, May the 2nd, 1559, he sets foot back on Scottish soil. And this time he'll remain on Scottish soil until he wins it for Christ or he dies. So we enter into this final phase. We're out of preparation now. We're into the battle itself. He had been writing, of course, already encouraging English and Scottish Protestants, but now he is in the battle. 
As I said, Mary of Guise, French queen regent, she is on the throne. Her daughter, Mary, queen of Scots, will follow her later. Very Catholic, but also many of the Scottish nobility, not Catholic. And there's a rumbling sense of wanting to be free from the idolatry that the nation was in. When Knox arrived in Scotland, he said this, It is uncertain as yet what God shall further work in this great country, except I see the battle shall be great, for Satan rageth even to the uttermost. He was very right, as you'll see. Now, when he returns to Scotland, his first move is to a town called Perth. And if I'm pronouncing that correctly, not Scottish, but when he comes to Perth, it's an important city. It's a Reformation center in Scotland. In fact, when Tyndale's New Testaments were smuggled into Scotland, they came through Perth. He goes there and the queen... Mary of Guise, had proclaimed that no one is allowed to preach without proper authorization. And John Knox says, I don't care. So he gets up and he preaches in Perth, of course, but he preaches so fervently for four consecutive days against the idolatry of the Mass and the Roman Catholic Church and its evils and its errors and for the truth of the gospel that when just after his preaching... Uh, prob- probably uh, not knowing what's going on, a uh, Catholic priest walked into the same place to distribute the Mass, and riots broke out in Perth. Now, Mary of Guise was not pleased at this, and very quickly, 2,000 French soldiers were on their way to the city. Amazingly, the Scottish nobility refused to surrender they gathered their own army of more than 2,000 men so that the queen couldn't do anything. And so the two sides sat down and signed a truce. And then Queen Mary of Guise did something sinister and very important for the Reformation. After the truce was signed, the defenses are down, she violates the truce and sends in the 2,000 Frenchmen anyways and takes the city of Perth. Well, that's not a very good thing to do, especially politically, because what it did, actually, she may have seen it as a success, silencing her opponents, but what it actually did is it drove more of the Scottish nobility out of the Roman Catholic camp and toward the Protestant camp. So at this point, there is a growing sense of, especially among the nobility, Protestantism. Knox is traveling around Scotland, and he's preaching in these early months of his time there, In fact, he is surprised by how effective his preaching is. So many are turning to the truth as he preaches. It really was a work of God. He was just the instrument. John Calvin writes to him and says, I'm equally surprised at just how quickly the gospel is spreading in Scotland. It wasn't expected, but that's what was happening there. It was a bit like a wildfire. So, for example, a month after he had arrived... Issues in Perth had already happened. He returned to that castle he had looked at longingly from the French galley ship, St. Andrew's Castle. And he ascended once more his former pulpit and he preached again. And his preaching there, I, I think I had said he preached four days in Perth. I'm not sure how many days he preached in Perth. This is when he preached four days. 
preaches four days, and a large number of the city, which is Roman Catholic, turned to Christ. In fact, about 21 priests left the Roman Catholic Church at his preaching in that place alone. It seemed unstoppable, but that does not mean that no one was trying to stop the Reformation that was happening in Scotland. In fact, in 1559, the Protestants faced a terrible setback. They had tried to take the port city of Leith, and they had been pushed back. And the defeat had been of such a sort that the Protestant forces were now disintegrating. They were leaving. They were disheartened. They weren't certain that the Reformation could really proceed any further. Just as a side note, here you have Reformation proceeding by force. We're all aware that's not how it should proceed. And we're also aware, as we've seen throughout this series of studies, that God is not working in ideal situations. God is working in our messed up situations. And that's what he's doing here in Scotland. So coming back, the soldiers are discouraged They're leaving. They're in a place called Sterling. They're leaving Sterling. And according to Steve Lawson in that book we gave away, this was maybe the darkest moment of the Reformation in Scotland. The nobility were losing heart. It seemed that it was at an end. Enter John Knox. He comes to Sterling, and he is just the man to preach to soldiers, hardy as he is. And he preaches to these soldiers, and single-handedly, of course, the hand of the Lord was with him, he turned the soldiers from disheartenment to courage. Lawson again says that actually what happened, that became one of the turning points of the Reformation through the preaching of Knox. Now, the advance of truth was continuing against strong opposition in Scotland, and all of that changed on July the 11th, 1560, because it seemed like we're ready for a long, hard fight, and then the queen died. She was the opposition. And when she died, Parliament decided, amazingly, there was enough influence of Reformation at this point, Parliament decided, one, we're not going to let the French make our decisions, so we'll make our decisions. Two, we decide that we will no longer be Roman Catholic. This was what John Knox was fighting for. And this is when it happened here, 1560. But you don't just break away from a long-established church and start your own church in your nation without administrative details. What specifically do we believe about the Bible? And so a clear confession of faith was needed to guide the Scottish church. And who was better to write this confession of faith, of course, than John Knox? And in an unusual coincidence, I suppose, he appointed five others, learned men, to help him write this confession, and they were all named John. There's lots of Johns in John Knox's life, just as there are in mine. And these six Johns, as they're called, together in four days, wrote what came to be known as the Scots Confession, one of the greatest confessions of the Reformation, and therefore one of the most important Christian documents in all of history. It guided the Church of Scotland as to what we believe until it was somewhat replaced by the Westminster Confession much later. Now, I wish I could say that at this point, 
the war is over. Scotland is won. But life is not that easy, and neither was the Reformation in Scotland. So in August, the Scots Confession goes into effect. The nation is Protestant. In December, sweet Marjorie suddenly dies at the age of 27. Great heartache, but Knox continues faithfully serving the Lord. The middle of the next year, when Mary of Guise had died, her daughter, who was in France, Mary, Queen of Scots, became the queen. In the middle of the next year, shortly after Marjorie had died, Mary, Queen of Scots, came from France to take her throne in Scotland. Problem is, she is very Catholic. And Scotland is not. So this is an unusual pairing. Now, the queen is limited in what she can do. She can't just say we're going to be Catholic. She needs enough support from the nobility. So what she does is she says, fine, I'll go with your changes. Just let me celebrate the Mass privately by myself for my soul. And for many of us, maybe we would say, oh, that's a good enough concession from a queen. For John Knox, no, no way. He would not have it. He said from his pulpit in St. Giles in Edinburgh, where he's preaching regularly, he said not to the queen, but from his pulpit, one mass is more fearful to me than if 10,000 armed enemies were landed in any part of the realm of purpose to suppress the whole religion. Because one mass in the nation to him meant continued idolatry and therefore the wrath of God upon the nation. Well, Mary, Queen of Scots, didn't like this. You could guess that. And so now there was a tension, a fighting in a sense, not quite full-blown civil war, but there's this wrestling between the queen, who's accepted as the queen, who's Catholic, and this Catholic queen and this Protestant preacher leading the nation. There are five famous meetings between these two individuals that take place between 1561 and 63, Basically, the five meetings went like this. Queen Mary tries to get some concessions from Knox. Knox refuses entirely. He keeps his cool, but he will not budge one bit. She, on the other hand, becomes frustrated and has sort of emotional outbursts to where he has to leave the room at times. That's why it's said that he made the queen cry. At one of the meetings, she quipped, who even are you in this commonwealth? In other words, I'm the queen. Why should I be fighting you? You're, you're, not, you're not even nobility. He famously replied in one of the earliest examples of modern democracy that we have. He said this. I am a subject born within the same commonwealth, madame. And albeit I neither be earl, lord, nor baron within it, yet God has made me how lowly soever I be in your eyes, a useful member within this commonwealth. Yes, madam, to me it belongs no less to warn of such things as may hurt this commonwealth, if I see them, than it does to any of the nobility, for both my vocation and my conscience crave plainness of me. It's democracy before democracy is happening in Scotland, as it is today. Queen was, as you can imagine, especially upset when the very next year he remarried one of her relatives. 
So now he was connected to royalty in a way she did not like. Things couldn't go on like this forever. And to make a long story about one minute short, very short, Queen Mary, it's an unfortunate story. She had a lover, and it is believed that together with this lover, she tried to blow up her husband. She had married, and then she, with this lover, tries to apparently conspire with her lover to blow up her husband. The blast doesn't kill her husband, so somebody strangles him. He's found, and a little too soon afterward, she marries this lover, and Scotland cannot take this. So she's actually kicked off the throne. She goes to England where Queen Elizabeth is ruling. And years later, she's convicted of trying to have Queen Elizabeth killed since she's somewhere in line up for the throne. And so she is executed. The year she was deposed, 1567, Parliament met again. And this time, Parliament dug the roots of the nation deep into Protestantism. War continued between supporters of Mary, even though she's gone, and supporters of her infant son, who was on the, more on the Protestant side. But then, November the 24th, 1572, not long afterward, Knox died. He had been a faithful preacher of the gospel with boldness. God had prepared him with mentors in Wishart and Calvin. He knew what it was to preach toe-to-toe to speak and stand up to monarchs in a way Cranmer really never did, not quite like that. He was a bold and a fearless man, and he was just the man that Scotland needed. And when he left this world, we do not doubt that he finally entered into the court of that one king he had served and feared all his life and heard those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray and we'll conclude. Lord, I thank you again for Knox and for the unusual work that you did in Scotland in the early, mid-1500s to turn that nation to the truth. God, I pray for ourselves and our nation. We, as you told Peter, we put our sword in the sheath. We're not violent. It's not fitting of Christians. We suffer. That's right. But when it comes to preaching, Lord, grant us boldness to preach with fire and fury and zeal and earnestness to speak the gospel to others with, of course, a tender compassion and care, but one that is girded girded with strength and willing to speak boldly of what is true and what is false against it. Pray grant us this for the sake of your name and your gospel. 